Greetings and welcome to a brand new series of Fishing Tales podcasts brought to you by me, Matt Hayes, as we take a speculative cast together down the river of life. In the first of a groundbreaking, for me anyway, new series, I'll be including visual elements in the podcast so that you have something to look at as well as listen to. And I'll be using a mixture of great fishing images from my archive and the odd video clip as well. The idea being to create a podcast that's richer than your normal run-of-the-mill nonsense. And although there will be some pictures and films to look at, it still works if you just want to sit back and listen to the audio. Now, the late David Hall once described one of my early videos as the best cure for insomnia he'd ever come across. Thanks, David. But the fact is that if you just simply want to listen and fall asleep, it's perfectly all right by me. You might be listening to this in a bivvy by a favourite lake somewhere. I hope so, because it's quite a romantic idea. And talking of my ability to soothe people into a state of wonderful sleepfulness, I'm going to celebrate that fact later on in a feature for the podcast that I'm called Going Dark. And during this section, I'll actually be reading a chapter from my book, Red Letter Days. And the idea is that it's something to relax and enjoy, so there won't be any pictures or distractions during that very last part of the podcast called Going Dark. I'd love to hear where you listen to the podcast. On the bank, at home, at work or at bedtime. Don't forget to let me know. The Fishing Tales podcast is a mixture of stories, postcards and snippets from the world of angling. The odd fishing yarn or two will feature in Every Picture Tells a Story, which will be a main feature of every podcast, in which I choose one of my favourite pictures from the archive and tell you the backstory. I've chosen two great images to get us started. I think that you'll love the stories behind the pictures, but if that doesn't whet your appetite, well, I've got some topical stuff too, with an exciting new series of fishing tales to talk about, and I'll be reviewing items of fishing tackle. How about angling lifestyles? What is the ultimate angling lifestyle? Is it the one described here in this clip by the Duke? And that way of thinking has led me to do some quite dramatic and drastic things in my life. I mean, I gave up a really good job in engineering just so that I could go fishing more. That led me to moving home. It wasn't good enough for me to live in the city and just go pike fishing now and again. Pike had got to be part of my everyday life. Now, I reckon that retiring early and living next to your own lake is just about tops. You can't really beat that, can you? And I'll be telling you later about the dream species my dream lake would contain. But in the meantime, why don't you consider the same question and decide what species you'd have in your dream lake? You can have any mix you like. Remember, it is a dream lake after all. But first, here's a picture of the Duke posing with a big trout reservoir pike weighing over 34 pounds. It's one of my favourite angling photographs, one of my favourite photographs of the Duke, and there are just so many things that I like about it. So later on, I'll be looking at a photograph of the Duke with his big 44-pound carp from the monument. But for the time being, we'll stick to pike and this image. The pike that you can see Mick holding here was caught at Blithfield Reservoir, which is a reservoir near to Rugeley in Staffordshire. 
probably about 25 years ago, um, Blithfield first came on the radar of people who were in the pike scene as being a place where there was some huge pike being caught um, on the quiet by members of the trout fishing club. Now, back in those days, it was quite commonplace for um, game fishing associations and clubs uh, to cull pike, in other words, to take pike out of the water and kill them because of the damage that they perceived that was being done by the predators to the trout stock. Now, um, at some point in the uh, late 90s, they had a bit of a change of heart and decided that they were going to invite um, people into the pike fishing days and that the pike, instead of being cold, would actually be moved on to another water. It wasn't ideal, but it was better than having the pike killed. And there were quite a few people who got in on the initial invitations, uh, me being one of them. And so people like myself, Mick, uh, Max Cottis um, from Fox, because Mick and I were with Fox at that time, we managed to get in on some of the early fishing trials, as they were known. And um, the results were absolutely fascinating. The fish were never a pushover to catch, actually. Um, They were always difficult to catch, and they were strange in some of their habits. But I tell you, we had some really great days. Blithfield as a reservoir is a little bit special, really. It's got a huge causeway that runs down the middle of it, so it's bisected by a main road. You can actually drive right across the middle of it. Um, So you've got effectively end where the dam wall is, which is the deepest end predominantly, where you've got the boat yard and the area where the boats go out from. And then at the other end of the lake, it divides into two Um, And basically, you've got two arms, um, the Tad arm and the Blythe arm. And one of them actually links into a stream and another one uh, links into a reasonable sized river. So the reservoirs had coarse fish in it for many years, along with trout. And like many trout reservoirs, the pike in these places flourished at Blithfield. At one time, the members there on the limited pike days that they had were catching so many 30 pound pike it almost defied belief now when we got to fish it the fishing wasn't as good but nonetheless during my time at blithfield i saw some amazing pike caught and i even caught some amazing pike myself what i remember most i suppose about blithfield is the atmosphere um it's a large reservoir but on calm days it could be just magnificent And then 10 minutes later, the elements would completely change because it was a large body of water. So, you know, the weather was always changing there. And then it could be just a a raging maelstrom and, and, you know, one where you had to seek the shelter of the bank and stop fishing for several hours because it was just too rough to be out there. It, It was a remarkable place and it was raw fishing. That and the combination of the possibility of these huge, and I do mean huge, pike. I mean, we genuinely thought at the time that we might be fishing for a record. And we might have been, you know. It's quite possible. I remember I was with Stuart Allen and we were in a boat and we drifted into St. Stephen's Bay. I put the anchor down and we were casting away around the boat on the edge of a weed bed and caught a couple of double-figure pike, as I recall. And then something made me look down um, toward the bottom. And I thought I could see a sort of 
an old bucket covered in algae or something lying on the bottom. It was that sort of shape, a bucket shape. And then I realised that I was looking at the head of a huge pike. And I called Stu over and I said, look at this, you won't believe it. And I, and I won't tell you what he said in response because when he saw the pike, he, he nearly fell over. Anyway, that very same pike had one go at my fly about an hour later. We rested the bay because we couldn't catch this fish. We tried dangling flies off its nose and it just got annoyed and swam away. But we came back a couple of hours later, slipped in the anchor, fishing on the same spot, and I had a truly enormous pike that just came up really slowly and just rolled over the fly. And it seemed to take forever for it to complete this roll. It was all in slow motion. And just the wake that it left behind was as if someone had switched on about 10 washing machines under the surface. It was a huge fish and it brushed against the fly. And I was so close to catching that pike. So if you were fishing on Watery Lane, then basically you had the right-hand swim. You'd be casting onto a slope on your right-hand side, which is literally where the reinforcements for the causeway came down and met the water before eventually giving way to a bridge. So there was quite a bit of structure and a slope there, which the pike liked, and it did make it a bit of a hot spot. One of the quirks about fishing at Blithfield was that people were prepared to stand really close together to fish some of the hot spots that were located around the edges. You could quite frequently see um, quite well-known pike anglers, you know, all standing about three metres apart and just casting and casting for hours and hours and hours. And occasionally, after fishing the same spot for two or three hours uh, and making umpteen casts, someone would just catch a fish. Mick and I weren't too keen on getting involved in that sort of thing. And on the day in question, we decided to kind of pop round the corner and get out of the way a little bit and fish a very nice area where there was no one else fishing. So it was absolutely ideal. And of course, the result was this amazing pike, which was caught on a lure. And the thing about a pike of this size is, and fishing a place like Blithfield is that when that rod begins to bend, it really does bend, and then your mind starts racing about the possibilities. When you look at this fish, you realise why trout water pike are so special. They're incredibly deep-bodied fish. They don't live that long, actually. Trout water pike probably live an accelerated lifestyle that means they're, they're dead within maybe 10 or 12 years, but they can reach 30 pounds within seven years. Um, so they've got a very accelerated um, growth rate caused, of course, by the richness of the diet with all those trout mixed with probably um, a decent head of coarse fish as well. And when you look at this fantastic pike being held by Mick, it's certainly my hope that Blithfield will once again do fish of this size one day. It doesn't currently, but you never know what, what will happen in the future because everything changes in fishing. Nothing stays the same and waters go through huge cycles. And it's a lovely thought to think that one day I might be fishing the lake again with the thought that possibly, just possibly, there might be a record in there. If you haven't seen it before, Fishing Tales is a series of fishing adventures filmed specifically for social media. 
You can find past seasons of Fishing Tales both on my Facebook page and my YouTube channels. Just search for Matt Hayes Fish to find me on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Fishing Tales is a delight really because it's short and very sweet. It's a piece of fishing flotsam and jetsam that occasionally washes up on your shore and takes you back to the golden days of your fishing. We get so few opportunities to get together these days, so when we do, we really try and make the most of it. Of all the things that I've been involved in filming, I think Fishing Tales is the nicest to make. So now we come to Season 3, and a slight tweak in that I'm making the episodes longer to include some how-to-do-it material that I know anglers like to see, and certainly that's in line with the feedback that I've been receiving on YouTube. In the coming season, there are several episodes featuring me and the Duke pike fishing with both dead baits and lures. We catch some really nice fish, and the underwater footage is very cool. I'll also be featuring solo in a few episodes, where you'll catch me float fishing for a mixed bag at Furnace Mill and targeting some carp at Angler's Paradise. Now while we were out filming fishing tales, we were also testing some new tackle sent to us by Shakespeare, Abu Garcia and by Svartzonka. It's fair to say that you won't find a bad review here, but nor will you find a review that is about something we don't feel we can recommend. For the Fishing Tales podcast, I'll be cherry-picking items that stand out for me and or the Duke, and we'll tell you what we like about them. To kick things off... Here's the Duke reviewing a pike rod and reel kit designed for bait fishing and at a very reasonable price. This is a really nice combination that's on offer at the moment. It's a Shakespeare Sigma rod and Shakespeare Sipley reel. And really, although it's a fairly budget price, it's got everything that I would ask for for a pike rod and reel. First of all, it really casts baits out beautifully. The tip's not too soft. It's just right for propelling those dead baits out. But it's a lot of power down in the bottom end as well, where you should hook into a big fish. It's 12 foot long. Rods of 10 to 12 foot are, are the standard nowadays. I, I quite like for bank fishing a 12 foot rod. Now have a look at the reel. This is a free spool reel. And uh, it comes already loaded with 15 pound mono. And uh, the free spool's great because you can cast your rig out and if you should turn away for a moment and not, and not see what's going on, the pike won't pull the rod and it'll just operate the free spool mechanism. So now we're going to stay with the Duke for a moment as we consider the subject of angling lifestyles. And that way of thinking has led me to do some quite dramatic and drastic things in my life. I mean, I gave up a really good job in engineering just so that I could go fishing more. That led me to moving home it wasn't good enough for me to live in the city and just go pike fishing now and again. Pike had got to be part of my everyday life. Well, having known the Duke for a number of years, I can hardly argue with his vision of the perfect lifestyle, can I? But I have been giving some thought to this, you know, and I think probably retiring to your own lake and having a house right on the waterfront or even on an island in the middle of the lake would be absolutely amazing don't you think i mean imagine waking up every morning pulling open the curtains and there's that wonderful scene in front of you but of course the killer question is what species of fish would you have in the lake and i've been thinking about that too 
I like to catch bigger fish, so I'd be aiming to get perhaps a smaller head of fish, not too easy to catch, but growing up to specimen size. So let's just have a think about which ones I'd include. Well, I'd like to have a balance between some winter and some warmer water fishing. So dealing with the summers and the warmer seasons first, I'd say probably carp, obviously, but probably limited to just a few big fish. And I think that would be the perfect thing for me. And I'd certainly like to have crucian carp in there because I think they're a wonderful species to fish for in the summer, along with, of course, what angler doesn't love fishing for tench or what true angler should i say because they really are a quintessentially british coarse fish and wonderful for all of that and of course in the right environment they do grow to really big sizes but i'd also be looking for some winter fishing as well and i would definitely like to have predators in the lake in fact I'd quite like to have a fair few predators, but the problem with that is, of course, it's very difficult to have um, lots of large predators and lots of large other fish as well. It just doesn't tend to work that way. But it is a dream lake, so we're allowed to do what we like. And I'd like perch, definitely, because I love perch fishing. Pike, of course. I think over the last few years, pike have just got higher and higher up my list of great target species. And then there's chub because they are a predatory fish and they do tend to do rather well in still waters. They respond very well during the winter. And I definitely have roach too. Who wouldn't want to fish for big roach if they could? I don't know a true angler that wouldn't. So I'd love the lake to contain roach, either a lot of roach, which would be a great population of prey fish for the predatory fish, or, and ideally, one or two bigger roach to fish for. It'd be really nice. Anyway, we're going to move on to another section now. We're coming towards not the end of the podcast, but the last and final section, which is called Going Dark. So there won't be any visuals with this one. So the idea is that I'm just going to read you a chapter from my Red Letter Days audio book. And if you want to drop off to sleep while I'm reading it, well, good on you. Chapter 2. Himley and the Return of the Prodigal Son. Almost 20 years ago, I fished an old estate lake, located in a public park on the outskirts of Dudley. The water, Himley Hall Park Lake, was a jewel in an otherwise urban desert and contained some cracking fish. Like many other lads in the area, I grew to love Himley and its sloping green grassy banks, lush vegetation, vast canopies of trees and its lily pad studded water. In fact, the quality of fishing at Himley was so good that I reckon it was responsible for keeping a lot of us off the streets and probably a few out of jail too. Perhaps the greatest thing about Himley Lake was its thriving population of tench and crucian carp. To kids who are used to hauling gudgeon out of the local canal or ponds, the prospect of catching half a dozen tench and a bag of crucians was inspirational stuff. I loved the fishing at Himley so much that I would go to almost any lengths to get there. On Friday nights, when I'd downed several pints of Stella Artois, I would sleep for an hour and get up at 2.30am to walk, tackle-laden, to Himley for a dawn start. Despite foolishly inflicting some almighty hangovers on myself, I never missed a Saturday morning there and I have some terrific memories of nets full of tench and crucian carp that shone like golden dinner plates. Then, 
One day, shortly before I turned my back on the place to fish elsewhere, I spotted a strange white shape in the water. On closer inspection, it turned out to be a dead fish, a long silver beast weighing around eight pounds. At first glance, it looked very much like a chub, and I can remember staring at it, slack-jawed, thinking that it was by far the biggest example of the species I'd ever seen. After more studying, I realised that the fish had a small, almost twisted mouth and a broad, flat head. I had seen my first grass carp, one of a quantity of exotic fish recently stocked. And that was that, or almost. Shortly afterwards, I moved out of the area and those halcyon days at Himley were locked away in my brain. Gone, but not forgotten. Three years ago, I returned to live in the Midlands, but it never occurred to me to revisit the lake until a few evenings ago, I received a phone call from fishing friend Mark Law. In conversation, Mark casually mentioned Himley and my interest was immediately stirred. They're catching some big double-figure grass carp, he told me. On floaters, mostly. Since I'd never caught a double-figure grassy, the idea worked its way into that little area of my brain marked immediate obsession. Right, I said to Mark. Well, I reckon we should check the old place out again. And that's how, on a warm spring day, I found myself staring from the car park at a lake that I'd not seen for 20 years. The old place hadn't changed at all. Although it was smaller than I remembered it, probably because I'm used to fishing vast gravel pits these days, everything else was just as I left it. The sloping banks, the gaggles of ducks and geese, and yes, the lily beds were there too. Anglers lined the banks, fishing, I noted, all the best tench pegs. On the quieter field side of the lake, I came across a carp angler, Lee, who kindly updated me on the grass carp situation. A cracking bloke, he even pointed me in the direction of a swim that had a good reputation for grasses. Those grass carp love pellets, he told me before returning to his swim just along the bank. Good job I bought a bucket full then, I replied. I know a little bit about grass carp, having caught some smaller fish from other venues over the years. My main approach would be method feeders packed with scalded pellets broken tutti-frutti boilies and a PVA bag of mini tooties. A short stiff link and a pop-up tutti-frutti boilie tied on a size 6 hook with bait floss completed the setup. I also had plenty of floaters, which were flavoured chum mixers, with me just in case they appeared on the surface and, with the sun already shining, that scenario looked like being a distinct possibility. With the method feeders loaded, I cast both rods out and sent the ducks scurrying for cover. The method is not exactly a subtle approach, and I reflected on the fact that my tactics were a far cry from the days when we discovered the open-ended feeder at Himley. Actually, the open-ended groundboat feeder had a revolutionary effect on our Himley fishing two decades ago. Until we discovered the technique, we would float fish the whole day and it was normal to catch for the first three hours after dawn and then struggle until early evening. But when we threw out the first ground bait feeder, we discovered that tench could be caught in the middle of the day simply by fishing further out for them. As the day progressed, it was necessary to cast longer and longer to stay in touch with the shoals as they drifted into deeper water before switching back to the float when the tench ventured back into the margin at dusk. 
Casting those big feeders on short 10-foot fibreglass swing-tip rods was hell, but we managed it in a fashion, and boy did we catch our tench. Beep, beep, beep. My buzzer sang out, snapping me from the daydream, as surely as if someone had thrown a bucket of cold lake water over me. I looked up just in time to see the water boil over the top of where my left-hand method feeder had been cast. Something had a liking for tutti-frutti pop-ups. After picking up the rod and bending into a fish, I knew immediately that I was connected to a grass carp. The resistance at the other end, though solid, took the form of a dull plod rather than a determined, powerful run. This is typical of grass carp. They fight like a wet blanket until you get them close to the bank and then they go ballistic. I took things really easy, coaxing the fish towards the bank with my heart pounding. An hour into the session and I had hooked what I had come for. I could hardly believe it. The last thing I wanted was to lose the fish. True to form, the long golden carp came straight toward me and then went crazy at the net. Lee came over to lend a hand and we were soon admiring my first double figure grassy. It was, without doubt, one of the most perfect examples of the species I've seen, with sleek flanks, perfect golden scales and a broad, blunt head, tapering to a delicate snub nose. Shortly afterwards, grass carp began to appear on the surface in front of me. Like submarines they cruised, slightly subsurface, begging to be offered a floating bait. Accordingly, I made up what is known in carp fishing circles as a zig rig, a semi-fixed ledger setup with a six-foot hook link that would suspend a floating hook bait an inch or two below the surface and out of sight of the greedy ducks. After firing out some chum mixers, I was pleased to note that the grass carp were competing with the army of ducks to snaffle the odd biscuit. After firing the rig into position, I flicked the free spool lever on the reel forward. For the next few hours, I enjoyed a procession of visitors. Paula, one of the park rangers, came first and we chatted about the park, the hall, her part-time employment as a hat maker and, of course, the fish of the lake. Just after she left to continue her rounds, the zig rig roared off. I'd been watching the floating bait out of the corner of my eye and looked up just in time to see a delicate rise that turned immediately into a huge bow wave, followed by a fizzing reel. Grass carp number two, another double-figure fish, was netted just as two local anglers, Steve and Charlie, came over for a chat. During the course of the afternoon, I natted with several people, including a local lad named Alan. He watched me fishing from a distance before venturing over to break the ice. It turned out that Alan was a keen falconer, and we struck up an immediate rapport when I told him how fond I am of owls. Eventually, the conversation turned to fishing, and Alan told me how he'd not fished for five years. I used to be as keen as mustard, he said. In fact, I fished all over the world at one time, and all over this country, of course. So how come you stopped, I asked. I used to go with the missus, he sighed. In fact, she was keener than me. He turned away briefly, clearly troubled by what he was about to say next, and then added, but she died five years ago, and I can't face going any more. It was one of the most poignant fishing tales I've ever heard, and I can only hope that one day he'll be able to pluck up the courage to pick up a fishing rod again. Afternoon drifted into evening without incident, but around tea time grass carp began to appear in numbers. Shortly before packing away, I caught two more. 
The first fish fell to the method rod and the second eagerly accepted a floater presented behind an inline bubble-style controller float. Fittingly, it was a fish that did justice to the truly explosive take, a polished double-figure carp that had risen delicately, almost reluctantly, to scoop up the bait. As I packed away my tackle, I couldn't help but feel like the returning prodigal son. I'd been welcomed with open arms by the fish and by the lake. It was as if I'd never been away. So that just about wraps up the first Fishing Tales podcast of a new season, but there's going to be more coming in the future on a regular basis. Please subscribe. Thanks for your support. And in the meantime, until the next one, tight lines. <laughs> <laughs>